The following message is brought to you by Champions Church. For more information, please visit champschurch.com. I want to get into the Word this morning. I'm excited to do that. I'm always excited to get into the Word, but especially this week. You know, when you have kind of a unique experience that breaks the monotony, uh, it can bring you to a place where you, you don't necessarily rethink things, but you might think a little differently. So it's not like you're doing it on purpose, but it's happening. And I mean, I understand that this is a, a different uh, week, that we don't really have activities like we've had here, but yet you have the things that do go on, and you've got to ask yourself a question like this, you know, God, what are you doing? What's going on? I like to ask God, what, what am I needing to learn from this? What are you teaching me? What are you showing me? And I can tell you this past week was really amazing. I didn't realize that I was so dependent on things and taking things for granted at the level that I have. I got to tell you, I'm a big fan of being able to flush a toilet. Our house kind of got to love's truck stop status, and we, 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 we never got past that. We, we, we did okay, you know. And I never realized that, that melting snow was such a difficult task, right? You, go, you think, I'm going to go melt some snow. Well, you better get a dump truck, you know, because a dump truck of snow will make one gallon of water. But it, it made me realize something. I mean... It's just kind of interesting to think about this, and I'm not offering this to you uh, in, in any form of rebuke or anything like that. I'm just offering it as a thought. It made me realize how difficult a powerless life is. I mean, life got really challenged when, when power was missing. And I started thinking about my life as a believer, as a Christian. You know, I mean, are there things that I am dealing with and struggling with, and maybe I'm dealing with them and struggling with them with such difficulty because there is a lack of power. I mean, when the power came back on in our home, everything got easy real fast, right? You just kind of plug it in, push, push to play, and, and, and there you go. And, and you, you know, the, the reality is when we get accustomed to, to power, we notice it when it's gone. And I want to ask myself, and I want to ask you to ask yourself about just the, the level of the power of God functioning and activating, active, excuse me, in your life. And, and I want to look at the word this morning for the purpose of identifying what we can do to see the power of God be active in our lives. And what's really amazing is, is there's some very simple instruction. Sometimes it's, it's very clear in the scripture. Sometimes you, you read between the lines just a bit. But the reality is God's given us some really awesome and amazing direction to walk in power, and, and here's the big word, together. I mean, that's a really, really big thing. If you were to ask me the greatest impact on my life this past week, it wouldn't be not being able to turn on the lights or, or not being able to go to the faucet and have uh, water. It, it would be the isolation. That was a real challenge, just being isolated. I didn't know 24 hours could feel so long. Right? You watch the time tick by and it seems like your clock is rolling backwards. And, and it's, it's a really interesting thing to consider. And I, the isolation and things like that are things that are, are addressed in the scripture. And, and I want to talk about uh, our call to fellowship this morning. So if, if you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. 
Now, as you're turning there, I want to tell you a few things we're going to, to find. A few things we're going to find as we get into the Word. And when we get into the Word this morning, we're going to find out something that Jesus defines. Jesus defines what eternal life is. And I think that's a really interesting thing. I mean, obviously, if Jesus is going to give you a, a definition or he's going to give you a description of something, we ought to pay close attention. We know he's not speaking casually. We know he's not kind of shooting from the hip or, or making things up. Uh, but yet he's, he's speaking as, you know, the, the author and the finisher of, of all creation. And we ought to pay very close attention to how he defines things. So he's going to give us a definition for eternal life. And I, I want to see what that is. Now, in, in John 17 there, we'll get there and read that in a moment. You need to realize that in John 17, Jesus is praying for you. He's offering up a prayer to the Father on your behalf. Another thing we're going to find as we get into the word is what we're called to. You have a calling on your life. You've been called into uh, something, a, a purpose, so to speak, and we're going to see what that is uh, very clearly in the Scripture. And then a third thing we're going to see is, is what loving one another accomplishes, what it reveals. There's something really incredible there, and it, it's, uh, it's necessary for us to examine ourselves to, to see these things active in our lives. We're going to find out the importance of them as well. So if you're there in your Bibles in John chapter 17, I want to go there and look at verse 3. John chapter 17, verse 3. Now you'll see here in John chapter 17, I mentioned we're going to find out how Jesus defines eternal life. We'll find that here. You'll see in the opening words that Jesus is engaging with God the Father. So the Son of God is speaking to his heavenly Father, and he's praying, and he's offering this prayer for you and for me. That's the context here. And Jesus is praying, and he says these words, Father, the hour has come. Now he's speaking about the, the upcoming crucifixion and resurrection. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as, as you gave me authority over all flesh, that is, to whom, uh, all whom, excuse me, you have given him, he may grant to them eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the Christ whom you've sent. This is eternal life, that they may know you and the Christ whom you've sent. I want to break that down and look at it for a moment as the definition of eternal life. Now, when we think about eternal life, most of the time we ponder a long stretch of time. Well, I've got news for you. If you're measuring eternity in, in time, you're never going to get to eternity's definition. It's outside of time. You can't simply think of eternity as a long stretch of time because a long stretch of time will inevitably have a beginning and an end, which eternity does not have. But he's defining eternal life as, as something completely outside of time. He's defining it as a, a relationship, a relationship between you, the created, with God, your creator. And this relationship is one that involves knowing him. And this is an amazing concept. We could sit and spend our time this morning just breaking down that, that one sentence and, and what it could mean and how deep that could go. But the reality is, I, I think it's important for us to realize this is about a relational connection with your maker. It's not simply a, a download of intelligence. I mean, he doesn't say, you know, this is eternal life, that all of the world might know about you. 
you know, and, and a lot of people are content with knowing about. But rather he's saying it's eternal life that they may know you, that they may know you, the Father, and they may know me, the Anointed One, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the one that you've sent. Now, I want to talk about the difference really quick about knowing and knowing about. Now, we've, we've mentioned this before in messages past, so you're, you're probably familiar with it. But it would be very easy to know about me if you were to, say, you know, have a conversation with my wife about how I am, how I, I you know, enjoy things like, you know, donuts and candy bars and what I like to watch on television and, and who my favorite sports team is, you could obtain a lot of facts about me. Or maybe somebody would, would write a book on, on an individual, like let's just say George Washington. Just pick any figure, you know, and you could read a book about George Washington and you could read this biography that details his life and his habits and, and his convictions and, and his, his hopes and dreams for the nation that he uh, help to found. I mean, you could read all of these things and gain information about him, but you would simply know about him. That wouldn't mean that you knew him. The difference between knowing about him and knowing him is a point of contact between you and the subject themselves. I mean, to find out about me would be one thing, but then to actually meet and sit down and converse with me would be a whole other thing, to develop a relationship. And Jesus is talking about eternal life. He's connecting us with eternity and defining that life within eternity as a relationship with God and himself, Jesus himself. This relationship is something that we have been invited into. I want to give you a passage of Scripture I told you before we're going to find out what we're called into. I want to go ahead and jump to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. If you've ever been curious about your calling or the purpose or the reason why God was at work in your life and leading you and guiding you out of corruption and into prosperity and life, everything that is his grace, you'll find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. It starts like this. God is faithful. He's faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, some of your translations may not say with, they may say by. By Jesus Christ, called into fellowship by. But for our purposes today, either one works just fine. The, the point is, is the calling upon your life is fellowship. Fellowship with God, fellowship with Jesus as your king, as your savior. It's more than just a, a cadence. It's more than a club. It's more than a, a social group. Now, oftentimes people will come into church environments and join specific groups, whether they're denominations or not, and they'll be joining into the ideology of that group. Well, what the scripture is revealing to us is that's really not the life that God's called us to. When Jesus said, I came that they may have life and that they might have it in abundance, he's speaking of that eternal life that's the result of a connection, a relationship with God. This is eternal life, that they may know you, not just know about you, but that they may know you in me, the Messiah whom you have sent. The call upon your life and my life is a calling into fellowship with God. It's not simply a calling to, to sign up for a, a, a better, more 
moral and ethical life through listening to weekly teachings or participating in certain circles or groups or activities. Rather, those groups and activities are meant to be a place where we function together in pursuit of the fellowship and relationship that God's made a way for. I want to offer a couple of things just for, for thought. I want you to consider the crucifixion. When Jesus was offering up his prayer in John 17 and he spoke, you know, Father, the time has now come. He's speaking about this, this culmination of his ministry, this purpose for his, his coming, his, his reason for being born of a virgin and fulfilling all of the prophecy in Bethlehem and growing up and, and growing in stature with men and with God and stepping into ministry and performing miracles and seeing you know, many be healed and delivered and preaching and bringing the truth and all of the wonderful and powerful things that make up his ministry. In this prayer, he's saying, hey, the whole point is upon us now. Everything that has brought us to this point has simply been to bring us to this point. This is the point, the time is now. As he's speaking about the crucifixion and, and the coming resurrection and all of the wonderful promises that are, are, are on the edge of being fulfilled here, he says the time is now coming. Consider the crucifixion with me. That Jesus would be seized, that he would be mocked and beaten, that all of the prophecy would be fulfilled, that he would be pierced on the cross, that he would offer his life in our place. The scripture is very specific about an event that takes place the moment that Jesus dies. The word says that he's on the cross and he cries out, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? And people are scrambling and rushing around. Some are thinking he's calling for Elijah. Others think that he's losing his mind for being dehydrated and they try to, to hydrate him. But he's making this statement, this final statement, that all of the prophesied rejection that he would suffer on our behalf has now come to a complete fulfillment. And I want to offer this as a thought to you. Consider the beatings that were taken, the mocking, the humiliation, and yet you never hear Jesus cry out. But what would cause him to raise his voice and cry out would be rejection. It ought to tell us the, the, the potency of rejection, the, 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 the gross power that rejection can bring into our lives to bring us down and to cause grief and pain and suffering. That Jesus himself would endure all of the physical pain and, and, and all of the abuse and all of the, the, uh, the mocking and, and all of the, the, the beating, but when it came to being rejected specifically by God, he had to cry out. And when he cried out, the word says that he offered up his, his spirit. He breathed his last. You'll find this in the Gospel of Matthew, I believe chapter 27. And as soon as he's released that final breath, something happens. The very next passage of Scripture says that the veil that hung in the temple that blocked off the Holy of Holies was torn in two from top to bottom. That's pretty interesting, you know. I mean, that, that the, the very first thing that would happen as soon as Jesus would fulfill what he was sent to accomplish, the very first thing that would happen would be that. It makes me want to ponder that. 
It makes me want to consider that. Why that? Why not something else? Why not a trumpet or, or an angel or, or some other manifestation? Why that? There's something in this activity that was so urgent, so priority, that the very moment the last exhale of Jesus Christ was released, boom, it happened. A veil being torn. And this thing is, is colossal. I mean, so in, in, in scholarly debates, you might have give or take an inch or a foot here, but you're talking about something that, that historically was, uh, I believe, 30 cubits high. And then Herod came in and to make the temple more grand, up to, to 40 cubits. Now, we don't measure things in cubits, but most people would believe that a cubit's about a foot and a half. So let's just go with a foot and a half, and let's go with Herod's height of 40 cubits, and you're dealing with something that's, what, like 60 feet tall. I mean, I'll bet you at best you're looking at 20 feet in here. And this is a tall room. 60 feet tall. And the thickness, you would have to go outside of the scripture for the thickness here, but it's very, very documented in tradition anyway that the thickness would have been about four inches thick. I mean, just consider like a man's fist. It'd be about four inches thick. That's a thick fabric. 60 foot tall, four inches thick. And the moment Jesus would breathe his last and that breath leave his body, he offers up his spirit from top to bottom. That thing is split. It's pretty amazing. You have to ask yourself, what was that curtain? Why, why did it exist? I mean, why would God choose that as, as a sign? Why would God bring that manifestation into existence the moment Jesus would have accomplished all that he was called to accomplish by taking our place on the cross, that, that curtain was a barrier between man and God. It was a separation between man and God. Only once a year would a high priest go into the Holy of Holies. And, and even then, you know, he'd have a rope tied around his foot in case he fell over dead inside. They'd have to drag him out because no one's going in after him. I mean, you had all of these traditions that were, were, were largely tied to the idea that this separation existed. The reality that this separation existed. And the first thing that God communicates, the moment that Jesus breathes his last, is that separation is no more. You've been called into fellowship. The very second that fellowship was available to you was the second that Jesus breathed his last, that his offering was made in our place on our behalf and found acceptable by God. All that would separate men from God was annihilated by God's grace. Jesus' prayer defining eternal life, revealing that it's eternal life, knowing God and knowing Jesus whom he sent, is revealing to us an invitation that God is offering. When that veil was ripped from top to bottom, when it was split, when a door that was once shut off swung open when Jesus breathed his last, that invitation now for fellowship was issued. And it was issued to every man, woman, and child that we could be invited to know him, not simply know about him, not just kind of congregate in groups and cliques and clubs and increase our Bible IQ and, and become more knowledgeable about the things that he once did. Rather, we can engage directly with him. And in engaging directly with him, there are wonderful 
results and callings and purposes that are revealed in us and to us and through us. I want to give you a passage of scripture as we move forward here as it concerns fellowship, that thing that you have been called into. The invitation given when Jesus breathed his last and all the separation, all of the barrier, the veil in the temple at the Holy of Holies torn in two from top to bottom. I want to give you a passage of scripture out of 1 John. I'd like for you to go there if you have your Bibles. 1 John chapter 1. I want to look at verses 5 through 7. First John chapter 1. I want to begin in verse 5. It reads like this. God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sins. I want to read this again and I want to stop and look at it in in pieces. Because this passage of scripture reveals a lot of wonderful things for me, for you, for us together as a congregation. One, it defines who God is, that he's light and that there's no darkness in him. It's identifying his consistency, his perfection. It is identifying who he is. And then it begins to speak about us. It begins to speak about us that if we say that we have fellowship with him, if we say that he's more than just someone we know about, rather he's someone we know, someone whom we have connection with, reciprocated communication and influence from him to us in our lives, if we say that and yet walk in darkness, now that doesn't mean do something wrong. It means live in a lifestyle of rebellion rejection of all that's true and right to walk in darkness isn't to have the lights go out for a minute rather it's a decision and a choice to reject what is light if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet we embrace or walk in darkness we're lying and we're not practicing what's true now this isn't just some rebuke it's not a a, a verbal stoning it's it's not a a statement that's made in hate or, or bigotry in any way rather it's a simple reality check that to have fellowship with God is to be affected by God to have fellowship with him is to be influenced by him It's revealing the the power and the potency of who he is in his being, that to be connected with God is to be affected and influenced by him. I can tell you in my own life, I grew up going to church. That meant I was involved in in all of the meetings and and the the structure and and all of the the traditions and the habits that were to, to have an effect and an impact on my life. I grew in knowledge about God. I would go to the Sunday school classes and all of those things. And yet my lifestyle was still in darkness. I was filled with rage and hate and addiction and bondage had a hold of my life. And then something happened. Then I actually engaged with God. Instead of simply knowing about him, I actually knew him, met him, had a relational engagement with him. And all of a sudden, my life was changed. It was impacted deeply and greatly. And there was an effect to know him is to be affected by him. 
If we become content with simply knowing about him, we run the risk of living a life that's not affected by his nature and who he is. But to engage with him and have fellowship with him is to be affected. So that passage reveals who he is, that he's light, that there's no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we continue in darkness, then we are lying. We're not practicing the truth. But, I love this but, it's, it's swinging things now to the positive, to, to the prosperous, to the life-giving, to the truth, away from this lie and this deception that we can know God but not be affected by him. Rather, this is now the truth and the reality. If we walk in light as he himself is in the light, that means if we do like he does, there's this wonderful promised effect. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. I, I read this passage of scripture and I kind of think a little bit differently about it. And I don't want to define my thoughts as being different, but I just don't simply read it and take it as face value. I want to think about it and, and break it down and, and ask myself, is this a simple instruction or is this a multi-step instruction or is this a, a simply a, a proverb to, to assist in a direction or is this a hard instruction that when this thing is carried out, it produces a promised result. And I see it as a promised result. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, then you have these promised results. We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins. And you could see those things as just two separate results. Or you could see those things as one result that then results in another result. Like a chain of events, as if you were to knock over the first of several dominoes and one would fall, striking the other, and it would fall, striking the other, and it would fall, striking the other, and so on. And I can tell you in my life, that's how I see this passage of Scripture, and I want to offer it to you like that. And I'm making this very clear that this is uh, my opinion, and it's based on my testimony, but I'm pulling this from the Scripture. That when we walk in the light as God is in the light, the result is fellowship with one another. And then the result of fellowship with one another is being cleansed from sins by the blood of Jesus. Now, that's different than forgiveness. I mean, the moment I became a believer, sin lost its grip on me. Have you ever asked yourself why confessing Jesus Christ, why becoming a Christian would result in everlasting life or resurrection from the dead? I mean, do you think it just sounded like, hey, listen, guys, I want to start a club and I want a lot of people to join. So let's think of the most incredible promise we could offer, you know. Ooh, how about this? How about, how about life after death? Ooh, yeah, that's a good one. Lots of people will want that. Let's use that one. That's not how it is. When you think about the mechanics of this, it makes perfect sense that to be a believer in Jesus Christ, to call upon his name, to call upon the name of the Lord as the word would promise, to put our trust in him, would result in everlasting life all because of the forgiveness of sin. Remember, it is sin that leads to death. The wages of sin is death. If you have been forgiven of all of your sins, then just like we sang earlier, the grave has no claim on you. That's why. Everlasting life. Because sin is gone from my life. All by the power of the blood of Jesus. 
Sin in all of its effects, its ultimate effect being death. So I mentioned before the difference between cleansing and, and, and being forgiven, and I'm offering this again as an opinion. Have you ever found yourself struggling with corrupt thoughts? Have you ever found yourself, after being a Christian, dealing with uh, feelings that you know weren't godly? Have you ever found yourself in a situation where, where whether it was in mind, in thought, or in heart, you, you knew that the things that you were enduring or the things that you were walking through or the things that you were participating in did not glorify God. I, I could raise my hand and say, yeah, I have. Since becoming a Christian and being forgiven of all of my sins, my name written in the Lamb's book of life, death having no claim on me because sin has no hold on me, since then I would still find myself in the midst of impure or inappropriate thought or feeling. I want to be cleansed from that. And when I see this passage of Scripture, I see that this is included in this promise. Walk in the light as he's in the light. Fellowship with one another and then cleansed from sin. Cleaned. I can be free from all that would, would destroy and all that would, would corrupt eternally. But I want to walk in cleanliness. I want my motives to be pure. I want my efforts and the things that I put my hand to to be righteous all the time. I want to stay clean. And I see this as a promised result. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, the result would be fellowship with one another, and the result from that would be being cleansed from this bondage and this sin. When we're free from isolation, when we're not by ourselves, which the word says it's not good for man to be alone, when we're set free from isolation by having fellowship with one another, we can walk in the cleanliness that God's called us to. To not simply be alone with your thoughts and your heart, isolated, leaving room for, for temptations or, 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 or those things that would attempt to creep in and corrupt. And I offer this to you because I see this as something that is important for us to provide to one another. And when I look at the days that we live in today, I see that this is something that's under attack. If I look back on the last year, in the year 2020, I can tell you I've never seen a stronger attack in my lifetime against fellowship. To require people to stay at home. To require people to be, and I, I can't stand this term, socially distant. When everything that God has done on our behalf is to bring us together, to unite us. Now, I'm not making some political or medical statement against the flu or, or, or any virus or anything like that. I think that it's appropriate to use good medical practices to not get sick. But I'm talking about something that will have an impact on the mind and the heart. To enter into isolation is to open up the door for corruption. When we've been called to fellowship, when the manifestation of the work that God's accomplished on our behalf is defined by our connection to each other, we ought to value that, which, by the way, it is. If you want to take down a passage for your notes there, take down John 13, 35. When Jesus said, this world will know you, you will stand out, you will be identified and defined as my disciples by your love for one another by how you engage with each other, by how you have fellowship together. And you can see throughout the scripture 
Even the words being different to identify the importance of love and brotherly love. The fellowship, the connection. So walking in the light as God is in the light opens up the door for us to have fellowship with one another. To be open and to be honest, to be in the light. To not be ashamed or embarrassed, but to be honest, knowing that the grace of God is what qualifies, period. To walk in the light as God is in the light allows us to have fellowship with one another, and having fellowship with one another closes the door for corruption to operate in our minds and in our hearts that we can walk in, being, in a state of being cleansed from corruption. So I want to offer these things as results of, of knowing God and and. This result, uh, not just having fellowship with one another, but these are promises that I see in the scripture as we engage with, with God in a, in a relational form. Not simply knowing about, but rather knowing in fellowship. One would be a resulting freedom, an absence of bondage. Now when I say bondage, imagine a, a sin or an activity that can't be shaken. I mentioned early in, in my life there were addictions and I did use the word bondage. Things that though I hated, I couldn't get rid of. Not on my own. If you would have told me that, that, that it was possible, I would have told you I've tried. There were... were days and nights where I would weep and cry and I tried my best to look tough and mean and let me tell you it's hard to look tough and mean when you're weeping and crying and I would cry and I would would destroy everything that I thought was bringing me down pour out bottles and bottles of booze and say no more no more no more and the next day right back at it it's bondage couldn't shake it But when we engage with God in fellowship, and we don't just know about him, but yet we engage with him, and we have fellowship with him, relationally connected to him, the door is open for freedom to destroy that bondage. I'll give you a passage of scripture out of 2 Corinthians, it's 3.17. 2 Corinthians 3.17 identifies that where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. That is, that is what I want to engage with relationally, constantly, on a daily basis. That which brings freedom and liberty. I'll give you another benefit of this fellowship and its direction. Now these are things that I wrote down here and I want to offer them to you. I'll give you the passage of scripture that supports them. And I'm, I'm trusting and believing that by the Spirit of God, they resonate with you as well. Direction. As a result of knowing God, we can have direction. And I can tell you, if you've ever been in a moment in your life where you felt you did not have direction, that is a very depressing moment. It is highly destructive to be without direction. So direction can be the result or will be the result of this knowing that we're seeking. More than just information and knowledge, rather relationships. John chapter 10, verse 27. Jesus is speaking and he says this concerning us. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. The idea that there would be a relationship where there is knowledge between us and our Savior opens up the door for us to one, hear his counsel, receive his direction, 
And that opens up the door for us then to follow after him intentionally and on purpose. I have followed after Jesus on purpose before and I have stumbled into follow after Jesus by accident before. But to do what's right and to do what he's calling you to do because you've heard the instruction and you've moved in that direction is what Jesus is talking about here. Another way in which the scripture is beautiful and perfect that Jesus would be identified to us as our shepherd, one who would lead and give direction. And through this entire process, offer himself as our protection. When we have this relationship, freedom is a result, direction is a result. I want to offer this one to you, and this may seem like kind of a stretch, but bear with me. Purpose. Now, a lot of people could confuse direction and purpose, but I think you could know your purpose in life, but not know what to do, not know where to go. I think direction and purpose are separate things. I think you could have direction, but not know what your purpose is. Well, I know I need to be there. I know I need to do this, but I don't know why. Purpose is a very important thing. I want to give you a passage of scripture here. And like I said, I want to uh, uh, look here at between the lines, so to speak. But first John chapter two, verse 11. It reads like this. The one who hates his brother is in darkness. And he walks in darkness. He doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blind his eyes. Now remember what we read earlier in 1 John chapter 1, that God is light, and in him there's, there, there's no darkness at all. That we're called to have fellowship with him, and we're called to walk in the light as he's in the light. The result of, of walking in the light is, is being able to see where you're going. And as, as silly as that may sound, when you think about it, it's really profound. I, I literally have scars on my shin from the corner of my bed because I will get up in the night and now that I'm past 40, I'm getting up more and more. <laughs> and somebody who designed this beautiful piece of furniture thought it would be really awesome to have a very sharp 90 degree angle right on the corner of this bed. I'm, I'm permanently marked by the corner of this bed because I will walk in the dark. I can't see it and I hit it and it hurts, and then I make noise, and it wakes up my wife, and then she's grouchy at me, and it just all snowballs from there. No, you're shaking your head no? She's never been grouchy a day in her life, ever, not once. But walking in the light, it just enables us to see where we're going. And that's really your purpose, to know where you're going, to know what's going on, to know how or why or, or those things. When we understand our purpose in life, we have our eyes open to the things that are going on. I want to offer you this one here as we begin to close, and it's this wonderful result of having fellowship with God, not just knowing about him, but actually knowing him. And the result is love. I'll give you a couple of passages of scripture here. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. They read like this, Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. When we know God, when we have a relationship with God, we become positioned then to be catalysts for his love. 
to flow through our lives, not just to enter into our lives, but to enter into our lives, have a wonderful and powerful effect, and then to flow out of our lives and continue to have an effect on those around us. If you're curious what that effect is, I'll give you a passage of Scripture, one of many effects, but 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 offers the wonderful promise that God's perfect love drives out fear. It drives out anxiety. When we know God, not just know about God, but when we engage with Him and we have fellowship with Him, the love that drives out fear and anxiety opens up in and through our lives for the purpose of being a living, breathing testimony. We have what God has blessed us with to be the greatest encouraging force on the earth today. To literally drive out fear and anxiety. When I read this passage of scripture, I I picture things. And I think it's very righteous to use your imagination. But I picture being such a catalyst for the love of God that even when I walk and I travel, you just see fear and anxiety part like the Red Sea before you because that love just drives it away. Almost like you would flip magnets and and they would repulse each other. You literally have this, this, this force field around your life, your mind and your heart that will not allow fear or anxiety to win. And all of this is the result of knowing him not just knowing about him. To memorize that scripture is a noble effort, but it's nothing more than repetition and and a cadence of words if we don't know him who is the word. To know God is to know the love that drives out all fear and all corruption and makes a way for us to be the force on the earth that we've been called to be. I want to ask you to stand with me this morning. We're going to pray together. So let me open up before we, we pray with this statement. A message like this could be preached Anywhere, anytime. And it could be a great evangelistic message, a call to people who've never, you know, called upon God to know him. I have the benefit of knowing everybody in the room here. I don't make any assumptions or presumptions that that God couldn't be doing a work in your life. But to the best of my knowledge, I know those in the room here desire and pursue a relationship with God. So it's not meant to be a message of of profound new instruction. Rather, it's meant to be a revitalization of priorities. Just like recently, we had a change that caused us to realize things that maybe we took for granted. Where we can take a look at our lives and realize, you know, for all of the drive in me to be free from tradition and habit, tradition and habit have gripped my relationship with God. It's become a, 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 a box on the agenda to be checked off. And I want to re-engage in fellowship with him. I want to walk in and live in the eternal life that Jesus defines as knowing, having fellowship with my heavenly father and knowing and having fellowship with my king and Messiah. 
And, and I think to push in that direction is to push in the right direction. I want to pray and ask God to, to do these things in our lives this morning. Father, we bless your name and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the call upon our lives to enter into fellowship with you. And we listen to the prayer of our King that he would speak the words defining eternal life as knowing you and knowing him. And we receive the invitation to fellowship. We give you thanks that we can grow in knowledge about you. But our heart's desire is to grow in intimate fellowship with you. And let all of the results be a benefit and a foundation to the church that you've established. That we would truly grow in fellowship with one another. That we would walk free from shame and embarrassment, from the past corruption of sin that is no more in our lives. That we might walk in the cleansing power of the love and the affection that you have revealed to us through Jesus. And let this fellowship and this longing to fellowship with you bring in any changes necessary in our mentality, in our schedule, and let us grow in relationship with you, that we would see clearer who you are, that we would know deeper and more intimately all that you've done on our behalf. And let all of this knowledge and let all of this fellowship result in our transformation that we might be affected by your presence, forever transformed more and more into the likeness of our King Jesus, that this world might see your faithfulness, your love, and your affection for all that you've created. We bless your name and we rejoice in you in the mighty name of Jesus. And all the saints declared, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Champions Church. We invite you to join us this Sunday for our celebration worship service. For more information, please visit us at chancechurch.com.